Welcome back. I think we can finally say welcome to the kickoff episode yep. of uh, Native Plants Healthy Planet presented by Pinelands Nursery. I'm Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Knezic. We're excited to have our first guest in studio. If you're watching on the video, you'll be able to see them, but otherwise you'll hear them in a little bit. Um, we're also excited to have some native plants in the room with us today. Uh, we, we promised you junipers and we didn't deliver on junipers. Uh, they kind of smell... Uh, I guess like a litter box. <laughs> Safe brand. Yeah, you, you know, we we promised on the last podcast that we were going to do have native plants in here, and it was going to be between two junipers, like between two ferns. So we brought <laughs> two eastern red cedars in here yesterday, and it immediately smelled. Hmm. And we're like, no, for the comedy of it, we're gonna we're gonna power through this. And then we closed the door, and I came back in like an hour later, and it smell as soon as i opened the door it was like someone smacked me across the face with a litter box and we're like we can't do this (laughs) no no we're like we can't do this to our guests so we're gonna have to come up with a different plan so we are between two hollies today so i think that's about it so uh, a couple things we want to touch on before we get started um we encourage you to follow us on on facebook and instagram and all that one of the things to keep your eyes out on facebook is we're actually doing a native plant march madness uh, that's going to kick off, I guess, the 17th is when you'll be able to vote for which plant you like more. Uh, but by the time you're listening to this, we're going to have a post up with the list of plants that you can vote on with their seeds. We're going to have trees, shrubs, uh, perennials, and native grasses all in their own brackets. And then they're going to compete for, for a final victor. Uh, and we will announce the victor on our podcast. Yeah, we'll yeah, do the it. announcement is going to be on the podcast for the winner. That'll be sometime in April. We're going to time it up with the, the actual basketball tournament and for seeding and all that. Um, but if you do follow the NCAA tournament, you'll know that there aren't just 64 teams. There's actually 68. So we're going to let the, the audience pick out those final four. So on that post, we're going to put up on our Facebook with the list of all the, the com, uh, competitors. We want you guys to go and comment your favorite native plants, and we're going to choose another tree, shrub, grass, and perennial for that competition. And the ones that we choose, if you're, uh, we're going to pick four people that are suggested the plants that we choose, and we're going to give you guys some some seed packets. I'm going to shake it this time so you guys can hear the seed. Um, and you'll get a set of ten, uh, ten seed packets uh, if we choose your plant for the tournament to round out the whole field. Awesome. I, I know which plant I want to win. I know which plant I want not to win, actually, yeah. after after yesterday. <laughs> yeah, not that yeah. Eastern Red Cedar doesn't have merit, but, you know, actually, before I forget, one of our upcoming guests, Marcus Gray from Audubon International, commented on social media when we posted that yesterday that that was his dad's favorite Christmas tree. So I did see that. I'm curious what what his house smelled like at Christmas. Yeah, probably not great. Unless they had a lot of cats, then it kind of might, might have blended into yeah, the, you the didn't smell know. of the house. Yeah, exactly. So uh, let's do a little housekeeping before we begin. Uh, begin. Just a reminder, if you would like to submit original intro music to us, you can do that by emailing it to info at nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. Uh, if we pick your music, we will send you a Pinelands Nursery gift pack. It's not a requirement. But I'm picturing something acoustic. Like I don't really picture electronic dance music like leading into this. So that's <laughs> yeah. you know, whatever you want. But I'm just saying I, I'm picturing Would it. Would you I'd like like Himalayan folk music or, or something? Uh, you know, it may it might work. We're open to it. It, it yeah. might work. <laughs> it, it might work. So 
So um, we also encourage you guys to send stuff in uh, if you want to display it on the table for the video portion of the, the podcast. And um, we didn't get anything yet except our boss said that we should have this uh, <laughs> little dr- spotted lanternfly stress ball. So Yes, that was given to us by Suzanne Knezek, who is the president of Pinelands Nursery. Spotted lanternfly is – if you. If you are not aware of it, it's becoming a massive problem for us in the New Jersey and tri-state area. Much in the same vein as, say, Japanese beetle uh, when it was first introduced or gypsy moth, except worse. Uh, there are numerous sites that can give you information on how to prevent the spread of spotter, uh, spotted lanternfly. Penn State Cooperative Extension, Davy Tree both have very informative sites. Please do a quick internet search. Help us fight against the new threat. Uh, also, one last reminder, and this one's kind of for me. Um, I have to try not to hit the mic stand this episode. <laughs> and actually after uh, – because I hit it five times easy during the last podcast in eight minutes. But not only that, after watching the video, I fidget and a tremendous – I held that coffee mug for six oh, minutes yeah. and <laughs> attempted to put it down like like five, like this went on for like three minutes. I'm, yeah. I'm, un, I'm unwatchable. <laughs> like so I have to try to – guys, keep me in check. Yeah, if you see me like floating – it was tough to watch the video for me too because naturally I talk with my hands and I was trying not to so I'm under the table but on the video you can still see my hands just by my knees just going around in circles so we're gonna that's why I'm sitting on the other side of the table this time so it's off video there there you go <laughs> but uh but yeah maybe I can edit in a bump counter for all the times you bump the mic stand and, see like every time here you can put there's one yeah. there you go maybe everyone can hear it so so uh but now it's time to introduce our guests and um as you probably saw, if you followed us on Facebook, you saw that we're having Duke Farms come in today. Uh, Duke Farms is located in Hillsborough, New Jersey. They're a leader in environmental stewardship and inspire vid- visitors to become informed stewards of the land. It's a place of education, enjoyment, and research that enhances the environmental health of the region through the beauty of its natural setting, the diversity of its wildlife, and the scope and quality of its educational programs, demonstrations, and research. Duke Farms inspires people to adopt the attitude of stewardship, protect the earth, and start building a more sustainable future. Uh, and I'll let the guys introduce themselves. All right. Uh, so my name is Charles Baraka. I'm the manager of uh, stewardship and research over at Duke Farms. And I'm Tom Amendinger. I'm the director of natural resources and agroecology at Duke Farms. Welcome. Thank you for coming on. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So, uh, and Charles, I have to admit that I actually, for all the stuff I knew about Duke Farms, I'd actually never been up until a few months ago. It was a nice day in December, and uh, and my wife. And I were um, wanted to get out of the house because, well, in retrospect, it hasn't been cold all winter. <laughs> but at the time, we're like, oh, it's going to start getting cold. It's nice out. Let's yeah. get out of the house. Mulling over things to do. I'm like, well, I've never been to Duke Farms. Those guys were just down here visiting the nursery. Maybe we go up there and, and check it out. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'd always heard about a lot of the environmental stewardship stuff you did and the outdoor education stuff you did. And I knew that it happened, but I hadn't seen it, and seeing it blew me away. When you actually get there and you're like, this is is magnificent. And when Fran and I started to talk about you guys coming in, one of the things we didn't really know is, was that always part of the mission? Or, like, how far did that date back? When did – it wasn't all – Duke Farms wasn't always that way. When did that become the mission going forward? I mean, it's uh, it, start, it actually started before I started working there. I mean – uh, Tom's worked there quite long as well, like at the... Yeah, I, I've been there probably time. about almost just shy of 19 years. Wow. So, oh, wow. Um, we began a master planning phase to re- kind of reinvent ourselves in um, 
late 2000, uh, maybe 2009, 2010, and uh, we opened to the public with our new mission and uh, kind of the, what you're seeing today in May of 2012. So mm -hmm. it's been only the last eight years or so. So mm -hmm. uh, but prior to that, we were open to uh, the public, um, but you only came into a gate and you got driven up. Uh, you had to be signed up for a you know class or a group, mm -hmm. and you got led through the greenhouses. So you only really mm -hmm. saw maybe an acre of Duke Farms, which is 2,740 acres. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and that wasn't really kind of hitting the point of what uh, our benefactor, Miss Duke, wanted the property be, to be used for. So we kind of had to go through this planning phase where we kind of rethought everything. And that's how we ended up, you know, first developing, you know, what our mission was. Mm -hmm. And then off of that, what, what does that mean for us? How, so. how involved was was Doris Duke at that point? Was, she had passed on. She had passed on at that point. She, okay. she passed on in 1993. Okay. Um, so the foundation kind of just was kind of status quo was with what they had, she had been doing with the greenhouses okay. in the 60s and 70s and 80s. And then realized, the, the, you know, the board realized that, there's a lot of resources and money going into this place. What is the social return that the, we're getting out of it? And it wasn't great. Yeah. So that's why the, the revisioning. Happened. And it's a huge difference. I was there in the early 2000s for a New Jersey Nursery Landscape Association meeting, and it was held, I guess, what is now like the propagation in, in nursery houses. And it was more of like a conservatory yeah, that right. you would see along with gardens. I guess it was like formal, like boxwood hedges and things yeah, like that. Correct. So. So and that's all gone now, correct? Uh, or is it the, still the, plant, the plant material is gone. The, okay. the, the physical structure is still there. Okay. Um, because of our sustainability mission, one of the things we looked at was there's one for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll have to keep one for yeah. all of us to yeah. see how I many. I'm sitting <laughs> on my hands right I'm now. I'm gonna be busy with the bump. <laughs> <laughs> so with our new sustainability, you know, vision, um, those things cost over a million dollars a year to heat. They oh, were wow. like, super wow. intense and. Um, kind of weren't weren't really fitting with our new mission. Um, we did take a 1899 conservatory, which is um, the, called the Orchid House, and that's kind of yeah. where we display some of our orchids, and we do other stuff there as well. Um, so that's also a lead platinum building. That was part of our capital um, improvement of the property. Mm -hmm. We actually made a greenhouse lead platinum, believe it or not, through different mm -hmm. you know um, uh, new technologies and stuff. Uh, but we also do um, native plant production now okay. up in that area as well for our restoration projects with two growers that used to be uh, exotic plant growers for the old greenhouses, and they had to educate themselves. And yeah. So it's still the same growers that were – they had to s completely switch gears, Correct. which yeah. is – you know, and that's – I can relate to that. Before I was at Pinelands Nursery, I was at Princeton Nurseries, and so was our propagator. And I had been there for nine years. Glenn was there for 22 years. And when you're dealing with ornamental hort and then you switch, you realize you don't know anything <laughs> or how little you know about right. the industry as a whole. And right. it was it was basically starting over again yeah. and, and 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 being humble and starting from scratch. Yeah. Like our, our growers, well, I'd name them Callie and Joe Valent. They're they're great people. They worked uh in the horticulture industry for years, like I think before they came to Duke even to work on ornamental gardens, they did stuff with like uh, making mums, doing okay. production like that. So, but they started around the time when we started rearing native plants. So when did that time when that start? Uh, around 2010, before we even okay. opened to the public, we started to kind of revision. Get get started like what we needed to do for restoration. Yeah, I, I came in just around 2009, 2010. So. Um, I remember they started working on meadow plants. We started replanting a lot of our turf areas. Mm -hmm. Those got transformed into meadows through a combination of 
seeding the lawns with a uh, no-till seed drill. But in a lot of areas where we needed to get plants now, we also propagated a lot of plants from seed that we gathered on the property. Um, so they were doing a lot of meadow plant production. They cranked out tons of meadow plants towards the end, and then we're, we're actually re-examining what areas we need to do next. So we're actually doing a lot of forest uh, uh, plant production. So it's a lot of like shade-loving uh, herbs, grasses. Uh, another big thing we're working on is shrubs, because like, I mean, at the past use of the land, we used to have deer densities that were up to like 300 deer per square mile. Wow. Um, so the shrub understory was pretty much absent. And that was for how, decades, yeah, so it was not even a seed how, source. How can yeah. you control, are you able to control that at all, or are you just at, oh, at no. the... We, so, um, in 1999, we constructed a 640-acre deer exclosure, okay. which at the time was a deer enclosure, because <laughs> uh, we did have over 300 deer inside there. And yeah. I mean, it was, the forest was denuded up until about four and a half, five feet, and you could see for miles through the yeah. forest wow. patches. Mm. And the only understory we had really was bar Japanese barberry and stiltgrass and... Yeah. It was it was a nightmare. All the invasives that you get when that uh, happens. So in 2004, we implemented a, uh, a, a deer management program to address the overpopulation and have maintained a, a, a management program ever since. And we're, you know, since 2000, I would say we started in 2004. Since 2006, 2007, we've been down below 30 deer per square mile. Wow. Which is and, a huge, It's and it's made huge differences. We've been tracking the vegetation response and- And it has to be difficult because you're open to the public six six to seven days a week, correct? correct. Yeah, mm -hmm. so I'm sure that that's challenging as well. Yeah. Um, a lot of, a lot, yeah, Charles can, can talk about Charles is, uh, I've, I've relinquished the reins many years ago to Charles. <laughs> yeah, he manages that program now, so I'll let him talk about it a little yeah. bit more in depth. But uh, yeah, so it's, uh, it's challenging, but most of the hunting goes on outside of those areas. Outside the area of open to the mm -hmm. public. So as they like, you might know, like, so the area that's enclosed in the deer fence that's open to the public, that's only managed on occasion through, like, special coordination. But outside of it, we run a, uh, through a bunch of uh, several, I think, uh, at least full-time dozen uh, volunteer hunters who work mm -hmm. in the program. And uh, they work during the normal hunting season. It's nothing outside, like, the nor like, perm like mm -hmm. permit work, anything that other farmers might use. And it was a pretty efficient program. We get pretty good uh, results over the years. We track all the data when they harvest deer. We do a uh, actual scan of the property using uh, infrared cameras. We had a fixed-wing aircraft for many years, uh, mm -hmm. taking photographs of the site and counting how much deer. That's how we know what kind yeah. of deer density is. Yeah. It lets us know at the end of the season what it's like. And uh, so it's been working out pretty good with that. Um, so I mean, it, it's a it's a nice program. I know like. Uh, Tom has also spoken to many people about how the program is run because it's just kind of like a model to like for other people to kind of use yeah. in that area. Because it can be a challenge in New Jersey with a lot of like the, I mean, especially when areas that are like post agricultural land stuff, mm -hmm. it's just like a, like it just cranks out a ton of deer. And unfortunately, it's just kind of hard to manage. And we had a perfect storm, areas. really. Even um, a couple of ecologists, friends of mine, when we first started, I first started thinking about this stuff years ago at Duke Farms, you know, like you have the worst case scenario you had. You know, disturbed soils from, you know, post-ag. You had uh, wealthy benefactors who traveled the globe and found, you know, like, really cool plants all over the place. <laughs> yes. I mean, we have pictures of miscanthus grass planted in 1905. Wow. So we have a major problem with things like mm -hmm. Chinese silver grass all over the property. And, it was, I mean, the hybrid density of deer, and it was and, the whole... And, and for people that don't know, a lot of times invasives, you, when they're introduced... They, they're not invasives right away. You right. don't know they're invasives because it takes wildlife 
probably 10 years to start feeding on that and spreading it. So sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, like Japanese barberry for the longest time wasn't considered an invasive. Then wildlife was like, hey, we're hungry. Let's try this. And then all of a sudden, boom, it's it's an issue. So it, it takes some time. Like So in 1905, it might not have been an issue. Well, it was yeah. also promoted as sterile. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's like calorie pair that we – you know, Bradford Pear, we would deal with that too. Yeah. Both of those were promoted by the, you know, the nursery people as being, you know, yeah. sterile, and they weren't. And, and, and I, <laughs> I, mean, I know they jumped out of their, you know, safety zones. And mm-hmm. I know deer have plenty of, of um, factors against them, but if, if you look at native plants, probably one of their biggest um, enemies are deer mm-hmm. because that's their native flora, that's mm-hmm. their, their native palate that's yep. what they like to eat yeah. you know and things like let's just say maple leaf viburnum which were plentiful 20 years ago you don't you don't see them anymore because yeah. they've been eaten to the ground that's yeah, the understory it's funny you mention that plant actually yeah, yeah there's a yeah she did have in one area of our park um we had a old dog enclosure that was used for some guard dogs that kept uh, animals out of the nursery and stuff at the time and that pen once it was removed and we started managing the deer we actually had some maple leaf viburnum kind of grow back in that area first that was just like the oldest like unofficial enclosure at the time so i mean charles is kidding literally on the four square mile property we had three maple leaf viburnums in the understory wow and and only because the dog pen was there yeah Hmm. and they've they've since spread yeah. Um, as you know, they're hard to propagate, so we've tried, mm-hmm. but they're, uh, yeah. they're... They're difficult. They're, but, they, yeah. but they were, like you said, they were 40% of the under, understory at, some, at one point in the mm-hmm. 40s. Uh, wow. And now uh, they're gone. Yeah. Emil DeVito from uh, New mm-hmm. Jersey Conservation Foundation sure, has done... Yeah, like we're fencing in some areas, and he mm-hmm. said as soon as you fence in the, the wooded areas and keep the deer out, it's amazing what comes back. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that in some to some extent. Like okay. for us, um, he's talking about areas that may have not have had the... the longevity of deer problem yeah correct. like so for us we we have to actually you know reinstate yeah <laughs> a shrub layer because it's, there's no seed source oh gotcha. it's been decades mm-hmm. some of these, decades some of these areas that are like they used to mow under the trees it was pretty much almost like a county kind of like like a kind of park setting kind of polished then a uh kind of like uh woodlot so a lot of those areas have a lot but i mean you still see in some areas you see stuff like the spring of Fremont, like spring beauty is pretty much like a carpet Wow. I mean, picture Duke area. Farms when I first started. They're looking like Biltmore Estate. Okay, where we picked gotcha. up every piece of dead wood. You got gotcha. you know, clean, it. Looked cleaned and maintained. It was and totally spotless. manicured. Now it's a different aesthetic. For sure. It's a completely different aesthetic. Yeah. And one of the things that was really neat when I was just there was that the aesthetic now, how it's a combination of this native habitat, but you still have ruins mm-hmm. of the mansion they started to build and the old hay barn, and. It was all integrated, like the conservatory, or not the conservatory, the orchid house, uh, is surrounded by some lawn, but then native habitat around it. And it was really, really unique to see how it coexisted and and the history. And it was a really neat experience just to see all that together. It coexists and it flows, which it, like, Mm -hmm. the orchid house to me is a nice little oasis as you come across it. And it, the whole, the whole area is that way to me so it's and i kind of marveled um one of the things from the moment you you pull into the vegetative bioswales uh i i love the details and that's um from the water refill stations even the menu in the cafeteria it it's one clear tied together message and i love the small details and that was one of the questions i wanted to ask the two of you is are there small details that you know that maybe the average person overlooks when they wait well you actually 
took my thunder on that one. <laughs> okay. It is the way that, I mean, one of the things that was hard for me to impress upon people was a new aesthetic, yeah. including people that had worked there in the past and had an idea of what, you know, I ruined Duke Farms. <laughs> you, know, you and your staff ruined Duke Farms. What did you do? It used to be so beautiful. Yeah. So kind of showing them the beauty within, the way I look at it is um, we had 200 acres of lawn that we used to maintain. Yeah. Um, now they're pollinator meadows with the, you know, express interest of, of supporting native pollinator populations. And so they're beautiful. I think four season, you know, four season. And the way that we've decided to keep them maintained is almost like they're a picture frame. Hmm. So that we have like, a, you know, four foot path, uh, uh, a border around these meadows. Hmm. So people can experience nature, but feel safe. So it's yeah. like people that are from coming from, you know, maybe a more urbanized area. They're for, I mean, we've we've heard like we have to be careful of the native grasses falling into the trails, mm-hmm. so we have to like yeah. maintain a width just that makes people up. comfortable. But they can still experience, you know, seeing butterflies. That's two, the big two. You know, so that's that to me. That that's something that I think I don't know if people necessarily s- per- perceive that they're actually experiencing. Mm-hmm. So you guys might because you're kind of cognizant of that kind of and world. And you take it for granted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. and even as we're walking along, we we saw a little, it was a tiny little Japanese barberry, and I brought up to my wife, oh, this is the thing I'm always talking about and saying how bad it is. Yeah. And um, But I wondered how many other people, as they walked at that same curve in the trail, saw that same plant and recognized it was there and recognized its invasiveness and mm-hmm. how it's uh, not great for the environment. But it's, pretty, it's funny you say it because that's one of the things that, as a, you know, as our land stewards try to maintain our pop, our property, one of the things we always think about, and I don't know if everyone that else manages property has to deal with this, but I think what you just said, if you're not understanding of that, that this plant is not good for the environment, and you're walking by and says, oh, Duke Farms has this, mm-hmm. maybe we should get that. And they take a picture <laughs> of it and go buy it. Yeah. That's, that that it keeps me awake at night. Yeah, so like, we actually have a, a, a methodology, we call it, like okay. cleaning around yeah. These areas that people are going to see and make sure that they're not saying, mm-hmm. oh, Duke Farms planted it. Mm-hmm. We should plant that yeah. as well. Yeah. So kind of the visual beyond our habitat goals. Like, it's like, be, like because they don't else. know. And, and part of part of getting people to appreciate it is being informative mm-hmm. and giving them knowledge. That's yeah. that's the power that's, for all of it. Like on social media, we talk about stuff like that too. Like I remember we were removing a uh, hedgerow in one area, and we were, it was right when the calorie pear was blooming. And gotcha. we were showing it, feeding the chipper. It was throwing flower petals off it. We were just explaining it looks pretty, but this is not a good plant. So I just explain to people like that. Because, I mean, like Tom was saying, people see something as pretty. I mean, probably in a couple of weeks, the lesser celandine will start going into bloom. And that, it looks crazy. It's a big carpet of yellow, but that's like a very... It's hard invasive in like some of the floodplain areas of the property. It is. So. People see it and it holds its leaves long and it has good fall color and it blooms early and it's pretty and they think this is great until they have it and they realize how messy it is and how how it recedes itself so rapidly yeah. and it's it can take over. We've seen it take over restoration sites that are newly planted. Mm-hmm. Uh, even some natives can be like sweet gum. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times people don't even plant them anymore because they just introduce themselves. So, but calorie pear does it ten tenfold <laughs> yeah yeah so it's especially in the section of new jersey we're in it seems to be like the hot spot for yes. it naturalizing it, exactly charles do you have a detail that you oh, that you notice that maybe the um i would say i mean, I, I, I agree with tom too it's just like the just the accessibility there so, mm-hmm. i mean you just have these uh old features like you have these big like stone and cement bridges they're very ornate but you can kind of peer into like a successional like future woodlot you can see like a whole stand of trees and it's separated by a small strip of grass but 
I mean, it's just nice. People can just walk in, take a look, take pictures, stuff like that. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just cool just seeing those just different old f- features. And I mean, it's just and it's just some of those little details too that it's like this used to be a property too, like stuff like there's a, a pet cemetery up there where like a lot of like animals from the property and stuff like that they were put there, and it was so people yeah. like seeing that and stuff like that. So it's just cool it has a, that kind of character to it too. Now the so out of twenty seven hundred acres, a thousand are open to the public. Mm-hmm. That's a huge transformation. Do you know like? Did you keep track of like how many plants you planted, like how many pounds of native seed you used? Yeah, we're yeah. We're, uh, we're data current. We were, we're data right. driven both yeah. of us, so right. we have those numbers, and we're actually in the process of kind of we have um, we did use some of those numbers. If you, we have a land stewardship plan, it took us okay. years to develop, mm. and it's available for anyone to look at on our website. It's actually okay. pretty neat. It's it's the the basic premise of it is sixty pages long, but there's like wow. three hundred pages of appendices, so and yeah, it's very detailed. But it, so a lot of that details are, are embedded within that, and it kind of gives us gives you, you know, the, the general public if they really want to dig deeper, some kind of what we're actually doing. Because it didn't happen overnight, and it's no. not a small area. It's not like you you plant it like a hundred or two plants, and and boom, you have mm. what you have. It's, no, it's been st- steps here and there, like small steps. Yeah, I mean, initially before we even transition to the the new mission and we did a we've got nine uh, man-made lakes that kind of if you've noticed have mm-hmm. they kind of were artificial yeah um in the 1890s they used steam shovels to develop and build these things and the water used to come up over a mile from the Raritan river wow. to the reservoir and flow mm-hmm. through gravity which it still does except for the fact that we now are kind of divorcing ourselves as much as we can from the river water and we have wells okay right. um on our own site that kind of uh do that uh, but it still pumps water up and flows through gravity but because of the management at the time they had mowed right up to the edges you know resident canada geese were destroying it mm-hmm. so we had almost uh three foot of lap erosion that you know the shore was lost yeah. okay so we actually did our first plantings we ever did restoration plantings were, were lakeshore restoration wow. so thousands and thousands of linear <laughs> wow. yeah yeah, uh, we did extensive, like it was like uh, core log right from the banks, stuff like that, goose netting to keep them from getting in there. It was pretty extensive, but you can still see a lot of the signs from it, like along the shorelines right now. And that was also wow. to modify the habitat okay. to, um, for resident Canada geese. And I don't know that if the general public doesn't know or if you're not aware, I, I'm trying to remember the stat, like uh, three Canadian geese, their nitrogen output is the same as a, a family septic system like they do and yeah they're 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 uh nitrogen in nitrogen out pretty quick too yeah <laughs> and there's not much of a gestation digestion period there. and they're pure and their um territoriality on the pond is also very bad for uh other waterfowl, uh, waterfowl ducks ducklings trying to go near mm-hmm. their nests are in yeah. pretty good danger from them and there is a difference like um there is a migratory f- group of mm-hmm. geese that aren't the yeah. problem they're the ones that have imprinted on you know golf courses and mm. that stick around mm. here and they're the ones that are we're talking about yeah, yeah. Mm. so that's that's a huge problem mm-hmm. did you have any qu- you know i this is changing the subject a little mm. bit right or transition i guess is a better way to put it we keep bringing up some of the history you mentioned something from the 1890s um we've mentioned like all the historical uh the hay barn and and foundations it probably would be a good idea to go into some of that history a little bit and um maybe give like a maybe a minute or two history of Duke Farms and how it came to be. We keep talking about the new mission uh, that's, you said, happened in like 2009 to 2012 and continuing on, but what was it before then? So if you want to go all the way back to the beginning, it was um, 
uh, Doris Duke's father, James Buchanan Duke, who um, also was one of the be- big, big, the benefactors for Duke University, mm-hmm. um, uh, had a tobacco company when he made uh, his first fortune um, and wanted to build, I think it was incorporated in New Jersey, you know, the company, um, built, wanted to live near, you know, um, the water mm-hmm. and built a, I think he bought a, I think it was around, I want to say 200 acre farm from mm-hmm. uh, the Dutch settler, the Dutch settlers that were in the area, one of the families that was that had been around for a while. And throughout the, um, I guess, 20 plus years that he ran the farm, threw a lot of money into landscaping. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, the, if you've ever seen the old foundation, which mm-hmm. we call the old yeah. foundation, it was a house that was never fully built. Mm-hmm. But what's really always intrigued me and kind of always informed me that our mission was, was in line with what our benefactors' visions were. The landscape was developed before the house was built. Mm. I mean, like, oh, I mean, oh, wow. the landscape was seriously developed before the house was built. Yeah, that's uh, terraced lawns, mm-hmm. a fourteen-acre great manor lawn that we did on the. And kind of, and when I saw it, uh, I'd recently taken a trip to Paris and immediately thought Versailles, the Palace of Versailles, and that terrace down with mm-hmm. the gardens and, and the that, straight the, lines did you, of trees. Did and, you see the uh, rendering of the building? Yeah, that and the, yeah, that's a French. And then yeah, then I looked at it. I'm like, oh, well, that makes <laughs> sense. Chateau, when, I mean, yeah, <laughs> that's what it was supposed to look like. Um, so, they, they, you know, that was, and so when he passed away in 1925, I believe, um, he had purchased over 40 farms and mm-hmm. had, I think, uh, max, his property was around 2,000 acres or so. Mm-hmm. And then his daughter took over the um, a property and I think added an additional 600, 700 acres or mm-hmm. so. Wow. Um, you know, to where it is today. Yeah. Um, she was always a you know, passionate environmentalist and, and, and her will for the property pretty much laid out kind of brief, uh, kind of vaguely, but also very pointed in my opinion, um, to what we should be doing with the property. She said it was supposed to be for, to preserving uh, protection of threatened and endangered species from becoming extinct. Wow. You know, and, and the farmland should be kept, but with wildlife, uh, you know, so she was very mm. forward thinking. Okay. Mm. Wow. Um, so that's which, kind of- Which isn't something I think at that time oh, oh, no. was on a lot of people's minds. Mm. I mean, in the sixties she was hanging out with, uh, Pulitzer Prize winning author who was also like a leading farming advocate. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, it's escaping my mind right now. Malabar Farms in Ohio. Uh, uh, it'll know. come to me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and do you think if she was to come back and see the farm today, is this what she would have envisioned? Or I'm not quite sure. I didn't, I didn't know her, uh, so I don't like to speak for her. I never do. I know some people think they can speak for her, but I don't mm-hmm. think that unless she didn't really know her. Um, I know that someone... Uh, who's no longer with us, one of our former employees uh, did work really closely with her and used to often tell Charles and I, and I think you can attest to it too, Charles, Yeah, she'd be so happy with what you mm-hmm. guys are doing. Yeah, yeah just, just the way the property is like now just such a, so many like different like flora and fauna is using this mm-hmm. property now to like just live, feed, breed, stuff like that. I mean, we've just been seeing like when, with the change in the property, we've been seeing so many more species of birds, mammals. I mean, th- during the very early heydays before everything went through the change, I mean, we didn't have chipmunks or rabbits. Mm-hmm. It oh, was wow. like so little cover for them to go oh. for. It was uh, pretty uh, like bare. But now with just this, the regeneration, I'm not sure if you're walking through it, you look into the woodlots, you can see mm-hmm. a lot of those trees oh, just yeah. in the understory. Mm-hmm. That was, even when I started there in 2009, it wasn't like that. It's mm-hmm. been just very incredible scene with the kind of regeneration so of not only not only have these like small mammals come come, come back but the predators that come with them are which mm-hmm. is neat it's like oh you're watching the system the develop cycle coyotes you know, minks coyotes you really know, you do have coyotes. river otters yeah. oh, wow like, you know, yeah. it's pretty neat and that one of the things that reminds me of is um when when we talked to kelly gill 
Uh, she always says oh, really a good sign of good pollinator habitat is when you have those predatory insects when you're having well, spiders aren't insects, but you have spiders sure. and you have dragonflies and the things that are eating the, yeah. the pollinators, that's a sign that you have really, really good habitat. Yeah, so I mean, having the predators really. Yeah. yeah. And, then, and then things that feed on them too. We have uh, American kestrels are like, we've mm-hmm. had an American kestrel nest box program on the property for like at least over 10 years now. And we've been working with the state on getting them banded and tracked and stuff like that. And this year, this year we're open to put small radio uh, trackers on them eventually. But it's just been, they use a lot of the, um, insect life and mammals and things like that that thrive in these habitats and it's just something you don't see in many other places since we're, since we're talking about wildlife i'm yeah. sorry and I, I was gonna say that's really a great segue i think fran and yeah. i are about to bring up <laughs> the same thing. great segue into talking about the eagle cam oh yep so yeah i mean oh, charles charles <laughs> could certainly be the one because charles <laughs> charles is the, the kind of tech head okay. in our, in our yeah. group all right wonderful um, the only the only part I had in it was actually stumbling upon it. Luckily, when I was in 2004, I was tracking radio collared deer, um, and one had beacon that it wasn't moving. So I was walking through the floodplain, and so all of a sudden I came under this big giant sycamore tree, and I was like, hmm, "That's a big nest. Yeah. Maybe it's a you know, great horned down." And all, then a white head popped over. And oh I was wow! Like, oh boy, and that was 2004. <laughs> okay, so that was when we first figured it out. That's, I mean, I did help get it. You know, I actually fought against the eagle camera, believe it or not, really? because I'm very protective of the wildlife. Okay. Yeah. And I didn't know what the impl- Im- implications might be, yeah. but I was wrong. Okay. <laughs> so with that, I'll, I'll let Charles talk about kind of the, yeah. the nitty-gritty of it all because he does it all. All right. Yeah. So, I mean, the camera set up, I mean, the original one was, um, uh, the original camera was an analog camera that was kind of a hybrid of a security camera and then some other uh, devices that a uh, an engineer down from Texas that did, uh, that's the other thing I did. I stumbled across this guy at a uh, the Wildlife Society annual conference in okay. Tucson, Arizona. And, that's, and that's, so that's, yeah. the, that's the fortuitous thing, the nature of it. It's funny how those things happen. Yeah. Right? Just. His name was, uh, the company name was Firm and Diversified. So he, he was designed, Texas, right? Yeah, he designed uh, snake handling equipment and wildlife cameras, which at the time was pretty real. I mean, this is before, like, YouTube was very mature and mm-hmm. any kind of streaming was around, and this was pretty interesting. So... It was analog CCTV camera. It was mounted in the tree with uh, custom-made hardware. You had to have like arborist go up in the tree and mount it up there, and then cable going almost 3,000 feet through uh, <laughs> through the forest up to like a house where we had this little uh, DVR and monitor. It's very like primitive now compared to nowadays. And wasn't it? I mean, you know, but I mean, it was, it was power and video over the same line, so it was very unique. Yeah, it was a unique setup. The guy had done some tweaks in it when it actually failed sometime around like 2011 2012 when we started replacing parts of it uh other people looked at it and were kind of like well i did some extensive modifications to the hardware <laughs> so it was and unfortunately for us he had passed on and we didn't know how oh, what he had done so we had to figure the whole system but um no it was interesting systems because i mean the thing is it allows you to see into the nest uh mm-hmm. Like at the time, just only during the day, but you could see some, like, what they're bringing into the nest for food and things like that. It was just, like, in the thing in the early days, they saw stuff as uh, interesting as they'd bring in, like, uh, parts of roadkill. One time they mm-hmm. brought a fawn into the nest to wow. feed eagles. Oh, so I was, could see that. I was going to ask, as a follow-up, what's the craziest thing you saw them oh, bring into the nest? Yeah, so that's uh, cr- uh, of the craziest things. So, I mean, I think it was during Hurricane Irene, um, the actual original t- nest tree that they were in, got cracked out of the tree and fell to the ground. And then uh, the camera was still up in the tree. That was in a separate tree at the time. And we're like, oh, what are we going to do now? <laughs> Things like that. So, but luckily they rebuilt the nest only about 100 feet away. Oh, wow. So we pivoted the camera to look at that in the meantime. We're probably eventually have to move the camera just because the leaf out was going to block the view. But 
fortunately, I think I was on a motorcycle ride one day and coming back and I was just looking at some like text messages on my Blackberry and seeing like, <laughs> oh, something happened on the camera. And I looked at the re- rewind. So a uh, red-tailed hawk had actually swooped into the nest to try to, uh, not sure exactly what it was thinking because the, the male eagle was on the nest guarding mm-hmm. the eggs at the time. And I mean, you can look on YouTube, Duke Farms uh, Hawk. Uh, mm-hmm. They'll come up right away, and it's uh, the hawk pretty much is uh, destroyed within like seconds oh, of landing oh. in the nest. It actually <laughs> became the babies hadn't hatched yet, and they had hatched. I think a few hours later, it became the first meal they had. Yeah, like, so <laughs> so that's, wow. it was uh, it, it it went so. F- the neatest thing about it, like Charles was getting at is it. It reaches far and wide. I had a cousin yeah. in San Francisco that called me the next day. Hey, I heard about your eagles. I'm like, I didn't even yeah. know about it yet. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 reached I think over ten, well over ten million people. Millions of millions wow. of people. I I see it shared on social media all the time, but yeah. not from people locally, like yeah. from people from Texas or things like yeah, that that are still, sharing it. Yeah, and we eventually upgraded to a day night camera so we could see different things during the day and stuff. I mean, other thing that's interesting is just seeing just you can see again what like from like the scientific aspect, what are they eating? So like. On the property, in like the floodplain areas, they did remove two dams that were in the Raritan River uh, that were obsolete dams that were just blocking fish migration. Um, not too long after they were removed, we already started seeing American shad being taken into the nest um, oh, wow. to feed the uh, chicks. Yeah, so one like of the tar- you know, three, yeah. a few of the target species that were these three species of sh- uh, shad and river eels, these things that yeah. spend time in both the rivers and the ocean. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean that it verified they were making it up. Yeah, yeah. Wow. These that's past, incredible. Know. Yeah, yeah, and not only that, can you see it live, but you're documenting it too. So you yeah. go back and some yeah. of these things. There's see a lot on YouTube. of devoted viewers and people who watch it. They actually noticed. Uh, well, the male, so the male eagle is like the original. He's been in the nest from the start. He was from New Jersey. He, he was, was banded in Rancocas Creek in 1999. Wow. wow. So, yeah, he's he's a. Uh, a fairly old eagle at this point, but yeah. he was banded there. He uh, his first mate was a New Jersey female bird who was around since till around like what like twenty thirteen, yeah. so, and then she disappeared. And he was with a female who had no bands. We're not sure where she came <laughs> from, but he was with her for a while. And then just this past September, one of the viewers noticed it's because the camera zoomed in so far uh, into the nest bowl. Uh, the eye color of the female was different. There was like a small like on the iris just like a little streak really and so i managed to discern that and we have some fairly dedicated eagle watchers yeah. <laughs> yeah birders are are passionate much like native plant enthusiasts mm-hmm. there's like if you've ever been to like hawk mountain during migration like it's it's a different breed mm-hmm. yeah in in a good way that's no, good, good. Yeah. and they de- I, I resemble that remark a little yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they determined that this was now the a third new female and as she like you're seeing right now the chicks just hatched a couple days ago and uh she's feeding the chicks and she's a little bit like somewhat inexperienced right now with feeding them she's been dropping bits of uh i'm not sure if it's a possum or a squirrel, it's a squirrel. <laughs> dropping bits on them uh, when they're feeding them a nest, but um, no, I mean the, the, the and the male, the, you can tell the difference. The male is so experienced. He like he's, he's like a tweezer, like fine detail dropping it. Wow. She's kind of sloppy and kind of <laughs> yeah. throwing food at the, kid, the kids. But no, it's just awesome being able to observe that in the camera. And, and you see it now. Like there's so many other different cameras out there nowadays. Also, mm-hmm. like people have different nests, and our program things. staff has just developed some really cool educational things, like you know, bags, eagle bags. They yeah. call them that teachers can take with them and. 
you know, it teaches them all different aspects of mm -hmm. science through the like teaching the, aids and materials, yeah. so like they can show in a classroom, like okay, this is the wingspan of a uh, eagle. It's a big rollout of like felt cloth to show them how truly big an eagle's yeah. nest. So again, that's what we try to tie almost everything we do to the programs. Yeah. You know, and we talked about that before we actually went on the air. That one of the great things about Duke Farms is not just going and visit and seeing pretty pretty flowers or or wildlife. It's the education behind it hmm. too and how much you tie into the education aspect where every time you go you can make it a different trip and, and focus on something different what are some of your favorite like i noticed we we kind of talked about like adopt a tree which you can see on the website um what are some of your your more favorite educational or po more popular popular it's education it's funny charles and i asked this morning our uh, director of uh, public programs and, and she said hmm all of them. All of them. And what's yeah. really, what's really, it's really great because they, they, everything we put out almost sells out. Yeah, that's, and that's incredible. We we try to reach uh, all the way from little children all the way up to professionals and everything in between. Mm -hmm. So it's we're trying to give us give everyone a little piece of everything we do at mm -hmm. every level. And yeah. it, it, it seems to be super popular. I mean, Charles is more involved with the festivals, and we do a couple of festivals here that are just a, a great themed one day blast of education to a, a, a great number of people yeah. and they are they're, so they're they're i would say those are hugely popular those are yeah those you get like at least a thousand people to visit during a day basically we have like some festivals we have one uh, devoted to like fireflies and other nocturnal animals that we hold at mm -hmm. night so they'll get a whole bunch of volunteers out there along with staff and they'll uh, run some tables it's yeah, talking like, about habitat and yeah. you know what, what the different kinds of fireflies and why habitat's important for animals like yeah. that. So it's... That's fantastic. You know, they do a, a creature fest, too, that's in um, fall, around Halloween, stuff like that. And it's, again, not nocturnal animals. People get to see the Duke Farms at night. And it's pretty cool. Like, people like get a rare chance to see that and learn about owls, uh, mm -hmm. other nocturnal animals, things like that. That's pretty cool. And then... And Charles even dressed up as a bat one time. And, and <laughs> in the trees. I don't know if you've been down the... Uh, <laughs> main, the main drive is in Sycamore, L.A., oh, uh, London yeah. Plain Trees. Yeah. He came, like, swooping down out of them because he's also a tree climber. So he yeah. Can, All right. Okay. Can we get we, – we need a photo of that so we, we can, like, splice it into the video. We have to dig around for that. <laughs> All right. That I, that would be good if we can put that as part <laughs> of the yeah. video. Yep. That would <laughs> sink uh, that in there. And one of the ones that was more recently was the Sugar Maple Festival. So we do make uh, maple mm -hmm. syrup at the uh, property. But also they fold in things about, like, how things climate in the wind, change. climate change uh, – the plants that are like over animals, how they hibernate and overwinter, and how they break dormancy and things like that—they kind of just cover all that too. So it's definitely interactive. You have community gardens there, yes, we do, and you a farmers market as yes, well, we do. Yep. yeah. Which is so there's a lot of different aspects to it uh, that's interactive and the education mm -hmm. part. There's there's a lot. Like the more I look into it, the more I realize the amount of layers that you have with this and how it all. It's a very clear mission. It, it could easily be all over the place, and that's – it's not. It all ties together very well, which makes it work. Yeah, it, was, it wasn't without a lot of struggle and effort and discussion, trust mm. me. <laughs> yeah, I, but, it, it, you know, we're always – and we're always evolving. We're always trying to find better ways of doing what we're doing. Yeah. Um, so we're not perfect, but, like, no one is, but – no, but it's we, a learning we process. Hard, we work hard at yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, seeing what works, what, what people like to do, what they what, – what really – with the when they, they took this class like hmm, we really like that let's do that again or hmm, this was a little bit hard to manage people weren't paying attention to that okay let's see how we can make that better awesome what what would you say is your biggest challenge in keeping your mission keeping to your mission statement well that's easy for me i i'm always the one railing against the amount of visitors we get <laughs> <laughs> 
it, it, it's a joke, but it's also kind of my deep seated thing is I like I have this memory of Duke Farms before there were people there. Now I realize it's not. We, it's there's not no that. reason. There's no reason to have Duke Farms unless there's people there. Mm -hmm. But there, it's really finding that balance. Um, yeah. We're so well loved. I don't want to be loved to death. Mm -hmm. I know the animals and wildlife, you know, must go a little bit bonkers during certain periods when there's a lot of people there. It has to be a symbiotic relationship. And I would mm -hmm. imagine if all of a sudden you were to double the amount of visitors you had in a day, that has an effect on the wildlife and everything around it. Yeah, absolutely. So, so that's, that's one of the things that I think we're going to have to kind of come to grips with in the next couple of years, um, kind of how we're going to manage that. Mm -hmm. um, because I'm, I'm sorry. I could, I could see it. Like I said, I was just there in December and... It's 50 degrees, a little windy, yeah. and I wasn't expecting that many people to I go there. Those. And the main parking lot was full. I was, like, in an overflow lot, and I was one of the first three or four cars in there. But by the time we got back, that lot was full, and the next one was full, and it was... Mm -hmm. But when you got in there, you actually didn't see that many people. No, it, it, it absorbs a lot. I mean, there's, there, are, there are, like, these little funnels of where people are kind mm -hmm. of end up being together a lot. Mm -hmm. So it does... If, if we can get people dispersed... So one yeah. of the things we're, we're struggling with now is... Can we get them like? How do we get them interested in moving away from like the the three things that everyone wants to yeah. do, and getting more engaged with the rest of the property? But also, maybe how can we spread out programming on the weekdays um, mm -hmm. instead of because it's really really in, on a nice day in the spring or mm -hmm. fall, mm -hmm. and even when it's nice in the summer, it could be quite intense oh, yeah. with all the bikes. And that's and, it's a great time to have those events, but it's also a great time to get stuff done because you're not competing with rain or, or yeah. cold yeah. or mm -hmm. inclement weather. Yes. Well, that's, so that's that's one of the reasons we close on Wednesdays. Yeah, Wednesdays mm -hmm. allows us yeah. to get stuff done, not worry about lots of visitors walking around and stuff mm -hmm. like that. We it's, do like heavy duty tree maintenance and that kind yeah. of stuff you mm -hmm. know, that we have to yeah. do. So, Charles, what do you think your biggest biggest uh, same question challenge for challenges the as far as yeah. just like the the mission and um, yeah. I mean I'd say it's just like I mean, I mean as far as like just how the the property is like. Con like con well, managing the habitats as far as what kind of succession we want. So uh, okay. we're talking we have the pollinator meadows. We maintain those. We have grassland uh, areas that we maintain for grass and birds. And we have the woodlots and the successional areas. Just maintaining them and also just kind of cope with all the kind of changes happening on. Like one thing with like the understory of like a lot of our woodlots, a lot of stuff that's coming back is all white ash. Mm -hmm. But that's kind of a double-edged sword now with like emerald ash borer kind of emerging, mm -hmm. stuff like that. So it's just kind of a question of how we do the long-term like management of those woodlots. Um, one of the things I was, I was getting to uh, earlier with like with some of our uh, native plant production that we do on site, we're actually converting now to doing a lot of the wood uh, woodland species like herbs and shrubs and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So we're going through that and how to grow and propagate those, which are a bit more yeah. difficult mm -hmm. than meadow plants, but we're overcoming it in many spots and stuff like that. So mm -hmm. it's been uh, just interesting how to manage that and uh managing invasive plant species on the property mm -hmm. too is because they're i mean they're growing back with less deer pressure just as much as the native plants are too so it's just like coping all that kind of mm -hmm. change happening the good stuff and the bad so yeah and i'm actually going to give ourselves a shameless plug here because mm -hmm. we're releasing in the next couple of days another facebook video where we uh we actually do like a whiteboard ecology session and we had bill young and he talks about Six. ecological uh, excuse me, <laughs> ecological succession and how it goes from grasslands and, and uh, meadows to hardwood forest and what a long process that takes, but how each stage is important mm -hmm. to different uh, different wildlife, wildlife and, different and birds. And, yeah, yeah, so we, that's what, like Charles was saying, we're, that's part of our stewardship plan is actually how do we juggle the various habitats from early succession 
to late succession and everything in between. Because one of the things, being that crazy bird person you, you, know, yeah. you talked about yeah. earlier, um, when I first started working there, there was none of the mid-successional kind of species breeding there. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Common yellow throats, brown thrashers, mm-hmm. catbirds. Mm-hmm. Now they're like eastern towies, they're abundant because we have this secondary growth coming mm-hmm. back in. But yeah. how, now we're trying to figure out how do we maintain pieces of that and what percentage. We actually went out and bought a forestry mower. Okay. To be able to kind of like re, re, you know reset succession and, mm-hmm. and kind of so it's it's challenging though to Charles' yeah. point. I would imagine, and one thing that people don't think about, so like you have the trans- transformation from the great lawn to the great meadow, mm-hmm. which is incredible. That's early succession. You're getting all these great birds that maybe you wouldn't get in the forest, but you're in an area that is ideal for creating forests. So how do you keep that great meadow a meadow without oh, all the because you're getting the rainfall for yeah. all these trees to oh, come no, out. it wants to be a forest yeah, yeah. it wants to be a forest it's, it's, it's a fight i mean we kind of prioritize like as far as the woodlots like uh just like we do with the grass and we just kind of def- tried to like not have things so fragmented like i was talking about we removed that hedgerow earlier with the calorie pair that was an old hedgerow just from just a lack of uh, mowing and maintenance along a fence line we removed that and we got a uh, grasshopper sparrow uh, to nest right next to that hedgerow because grass, oh, wow. grassland birds are not like hedgerows. They're repelled by the presence mm-hmm. and then they'll stay at least 50 meters away from it in most studies and that was like an immediate response there. But um, when we're going with woodlots, uh, we're usually kind of looking at priorities of woodlots that were never like looking at historical sources were never cleared like for like plowing and stuff dating back to at least the 30s. And we have some old aerial photographs and old deed maps and stuff showing that. So those areas that have a, a possible still seed bank, even though they're mowed and grazed and whatever back then, they still have better potential than mm-hmm. a cleared cornfield growing back. I mean, And they actually they actually bear witness to that when we first uh, removed the deer herd from the inside the fence. Those older woodlots that were there mm-hmm. in the 30s had – Solomon Seal had Jack in the Pulpit, wow. had May Apples, oh, wow. had these. You know, some of these, you know, my professor from Rutgers, Stephen Handel, used to always say, you know, these, these, some of these spring ephemerals are hundreds of years old. They just, you know, f- so what it was probably happening for decades, these pl- plants were getting munched down, but they mm-hmm. were, they just had a big, huge root mass. Yeah. yeah. And as soon as they were released from pressure, it was like an explosion of yeah. these yeah. spring ephemerals, which was kind of unique, which is unexpected. Which is great to see. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's like even outside the deer exclosure, there's uh, in the, like our floodplain area, we see like Virginia bluebells that came back oh. after uh, oh, wow. extensive deer management and stuff like that. So that was something that was always just pretty much munched down to the ground, and that's, but that's wonderful. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. wonderful. Are are there are there things uh, I noticed like, and I could be wrong. Are there places at Duke Farms that are open to the public that maybe aren't on the maps that are there for you just to discover? Like, am I? Is the pet cemetery actually on the map? Uh, I think it is den- denoted. Okay. Yeah. Um, right. I don't know if it's highlighted. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's All almost right. like we want you to discover certain things. Okay. Yeah. There's like um, a small um, kind of trail that one of our staff members really took a, a liking to. That was an ancient trail that kind of there used to be a grotto. Uh, believe it or not, with mm. a big, huge mm. fountain complex that spilled over, it's, it's not visible anymore. But okay. if you look at the old postcards. And so the old steps that go down to it are these gigantic granite pieces. Mm. And, and if you don't, they're not on the map. If you don't okay. know where it is, but if you can find it, it actually goes underneath this big, beautiful bridge by, by oh, the lake oh. and back up. So there are little secret places, little secret places yeah. like beautiful, beautiful, beautiful well houses, mm-hmm. you know, ornate well houses that, you know. 
but there's still places you have to maintain. Sure. So like in talking like the Great Meadow and, and things like that, so you're still having other areas that are nice little discoveries that people find, but you know they're there and you still have to make yeah. sure they stay. Correct. <laughs> nice and maintained that, and clean, yeah. That's another so, thing that we have to do, you know, that we don't have to do, fortunately, our department, but that's, we have 100 plus buildings on the property. So it's wow. a small town. We yeah. have a maintenance a facilities team and yeah. a plan for how to, you know, restore, you know, keep these buildings, old buildings yeah. in good shape. And yeah, some, uh, that's, a whole, that's a whole different aspect mm-hmm. of new farms. Yeah. I, well, I can, because I, I would imagine that not all these buildings are being used, so it's harder to keep them. They, yeah, not deteriorate, not but the, it's, yeah, the maintenance right. is much more. Mm-hmm. So we have priorities and we, yeah. you know, we look at maintaining minimal, uh, kind of houses that are unoccupied we, we, you know, we maintain the heat you know okay. the water so the mm-hmm. pipes don't break and yeah. that how, kind of thing but how, how many employees I think it say? fluctuates but I think full time probably for the, found, the Duke Farms Foundation itself it's probably anywhere from mm-hmm. 50 to 60 and it swells probably with some seasonal staff mm-hmm. to maybe 80 that's a large staff yes. that's, yeah. that's a large staff but it, what's funny it's funny you say that because it's half of what it used to be when we really? just had the greenhouses open really mm-hmm. yep so you know and part of where I was going with that is and it's we're talking about a facility that's free to the public. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, is that sustainable as it goes on? Like, is that fiscally? Yeah, like, like. I mean, yeah, we have we have a a parent foundation, the Doris Duke Charitable okay. Foundation out of New York, that is dedicated to you know maintaining our property in Hillsborough as well as uh, the Doris Duke Foundation for Islamic Art okay. in Hawaii, which is called mm-hmm. Shangri La. Okay. Um, so they we are basically one of their grantees. Uh, all right. For, for lack of a better word. So it can continue that way. Yeah. You I mean, that's, that was issue. a decision that was made by everyone from Duke Farms as well as the, the foundation. Um, Hello. <laughs> yeah. You know, I thought I unplugged it. You know, you could see on the thing, I actually, like after the last couple, couple times it rang, so I, I unplugged it yeah. thinking that would be okay, but I guess not. I mean, that's, it that, made that, it worse. That, that was a conscious decision by everyone, okay. including our board, to make it accessible for everybody. Mm-hmm. There's, there's no barrier to coming to Duke Farms. Yeah. Except for maybe travel yeah mm-hmm. which it's it's worth worth the travel it's a destination yeah, sure. so now there's only a third of it open to the public are there plans of more of that being which is a double-edged sword because you're saying like even though you want it accessible you're there for the public but then that actually becomes an issue as well as far as keeping yeah, the mission maintenance i mean one thing that happened uh, recently now is a bikeway was open between the northern part of our property and the town of raritan Okay. along river road which is a kind of dangerous road they put this bikeway right next to it so people can uh, roll their strollers take their bike or just walk on foot to a part of our property and, with and that, that, that ties into uh, this, the somerset county's uh, bikeway they're doing a greenway okay. along mm-hmm. the northern part of the river yeah okay. so it connects with, you can drive all the way from somerville to um pretty much branchburg almost oh, I yeah that. so it's pretty neat and there's like a we're basically a t off of that yeah mm-hmm. and you can uh, and we also open up some more area of like an area that was a floodplain that we're in the uh, process of restoring and did some restoration work down there and that was at least what 300 acres at least on that side About 300 acres extra okay. so there's actually over 3,000 acres now oh, that's wow. open to the public mm-hmm. so well, that's wonderful you can explore that you can it's see it's outside the, the fence just like the farm where the farm barn is okay. but mm-hmm. yeah the park is very is very distinctive and that's where you mm-hmm. walk across the road okay. into yeah. that fenced in area yeah um, but the rest of it is I think that your question to answer beyond that I think that I'd be hard pressed to to allow much more beyond that because those other areas are where our sensitive wildlife resides. Okay. So we do things with guided tours, uh, bird walks. When there's a handful of people with yeah. a, a staff member to 
experience these special places a little differently. I think you're very fortunate to have that buffer around it that you can control. You know, as a nursery, many of the times you can't control the area around you. So deer, they're just, they're not living on your property. They're just eating on your property and mm-hmm. then they disperse and you well, can't we have the really. Same, the, that's, yeah. that was, that's an example. We do have that issue because we have neighborhoods around us that, right. don't, yeah. that are not accessible for hunting. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So a lot of our deer activity is nocturnal Okay. when the hunters yeah. aren't there. Yeah, so they they're coming out of these landscaped yards and they're eating yeah. their landscapes and coming into our natural areas and mm-hmm. spreading it, those plants. It's, it's <laughs> difficult. It's, it's one of those issues that most people don't think of or it and it's you know you don't have a lot of control over it and you you try to control it the best way you can but it it causes damage that you can't you can't fix Mm -hmm, it's unfixable damage so all right so we're going to wrap it up a little bit i want to leave you with one last question Hmm. so just on a light note do you have a favorite native plant if you would rather do a favorite bird no i i I, I, I love plants too okay favorite native plant I do have a favorite native tree. All right, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> Actually, that I have a native deciduous tree and a native conifer. Okay. I, li- I love the eastern hemlock and the forests mm-hmm. that they used to be part of. <laughs> not, not so much anymore, unfortunately. But um, And oh. I do love the uh, swamp white oak. That is a great, great well. choice. Well, can you, you know, hemlock is, is difficult with woolly adelgid. Right. Yeah, like yeah, and you, you mentioned white ash with the uh, emerald ash, ash borer. Ten like years that. ago, one of our biggest sellers was green ash. We no longer even produce it. You know, and that's how much, <laughs> yeah, like, something changed. like that changes. It's it's amazing what it can wipe out, like a staple in your native landscape just yep. done. Yeah. Uh, but that goes back for, for you think about American elms and, and American chestnuts and things mm-hmm. like that. It's an issue yeah. we've always kind of faced but yeah as far as my favorite i think our uh, the beard tongue i remember like when i first started working on the property and just seeing the meadow was just this big ivory white just like field i thought that mm. was just impressive and just seeing all the bumblebees like crowding onto it, i thought that was like i like that a lot they do love that and it's yeah. nice early in the, right. the season it's like a cool and, thing to see just and um up. the one thing we'll warn you about because with our our native seed farm um that seed smells so much like a wet dog it's it can be <laughs> tough to work, work around That's but true. um yeah i guess maybe when you have like a 20 30 pounds of it all stacked yeah, up that's what it really smells like but. A, a, a second second would probably be also uh wild bergamot too mm-hmm. and it's kind of funny you're talking about the odors and stuff like yeah. that we had a uh we we're using the seed drill when plants to plant a large meadow i think in, uh, the drill had a little bit of a skip happening and mm-hmm. it dumped out a lot of the finer seed in one area first mm-hmm. So one area became pretty much like a solid patch of that. Yep. Every time when we were mowing those fields, it kind of like pushed back the succession. It, it smelled like just oregano yeah. wafting. Oh, over the road. Yeah. I was just like, whoa. It's yeah. some of our best pictures that we have of pollinators around that plant. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's such a good. For us here, you know, our biggest seller out of, out of everything that we grow is Spartina alterniflora, which is just your common bay, bay grass, smooth cord grass. Mm-hmm. The seed is unbearable. It really, it really, it really is. When they bring that into to uh, dry, it's wow. It's, yeah, it's it's worse than the eastern. I remember cedars. even being in high school and, and when I was younger, you're working with it all day, and then uh, I guess I wasn't in high school; I was a little bit older. Because then you'd go out and hang out with friends or go to the bar, and you're like, man, what, what were you doing today? <laughs> yeah. You smell terrible. But you got used to it after a while. And yeah, you never got really used to it, but enough that it took the the edge off and. It's it's pungent. It's yeah, pungent. Yeah, yeah. Tom, do you want to do you want to list a favorite native plant? 
Oh, like man. It. I always liked Liatris Spicata just because it mm. provides a different texture and a different color than uh, a lot of other stuff in in the meadow setting does, sure. at least. Yeah, it's an interesting shape. I, I would say my favorite... I knew I was going to ask this question, so I had time to think about it. <laughs> I would say my favorite is blue flag iris, mm-hmm. and just because mm-hmm. of how it's it's early blooming and how versatile it is. Oh. It's it's um, it could take six inches of permanent inundation, or it could take the dry of August. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, it's a great rain garden plant. It, it great rhizomal root mast for erosion control. It just seems to do everything well, mm-hmm. yeah. but it's yeah. very elegant and simple. Yeah. And for those wondering at home, that's the plant that is actually on our, our podcast logo. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. And they're, yeah. And, they're, and they, they grow quite easily too. That's mm-hmm. the wonderful thing about them too, is because we've made some on site too, growing them. And it's, that's such a nice plant to grow compared to like other things that need lots of stratification or scarification of seeds. Mm-hmm. This is a pretty no fuss kind of yeah. native plant. It's great. It's an easy one. So that's that's mm-hmm. my my pick. So guys, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for joining thank us you. today. We want to actually ask you, what do you guys have some stuff, um, what's some stuff coming up? You, oh, we're talking yeah, about thanks. festivals, oh. ways people can find you, uh, events you have coming up that you and, want people to attend. Or, or and, and more importantly, how can people help? Like if people want to get involved and yeah, help so. and, and be a part of what you do, uh, we have a, We have a really active volunteer core um, from all different levels. Um, Sarah DeVito is our volunteer coordinator, so the con- best way to do is contact her. But, you know, we have groups called Monitor and Maintain. These people come constantly and maintain our native nursery bed or beds. Okay. Um, weeding them, deadheading them, you know, you know, watering if necessary, mm-hmm. which is very, almost never necessary. Beauty native plants. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then we have corporate events. Um, we have docents. If you really want to get that deep into it, we're okay. going to training. Mm-hmm. So you almost become not part of the staff, but you know, like like, like a well well educated, yeah. you know, informed volunteers. There's many ways to get involved. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. That's great. And, you know, and we want part of. The reason that we're doing this is we want to connect the general public mm-hmm. with people that are mm-hmm. doing great work, and we want them. There's a lot of people that want to help and want to be involved, and, yeah. and we want to. Yeah. They don't necessarily know where the outlet is. They might have heard Native Plans, or they followed us on Facebook, or followed you guys on on mm-hmm. Facebook. And um, there's some links here, and we want to. Someone might have a real interest in butterflies. Didn't even know the Xerxes Society exists. We right. want to connect those people. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, and like. But we also connect to a lot of local colleges and stuff like that. They mm-hmm. do a lot of programs with their students and research and stuff like that. So it's also really just nice seeing how people use that. That's great. And get any big events coming up? Mm-hmm. Nothing. No big festivals that I know. Yeah, I mean, there's, if, you, there, if you go to the programs calendar, it's always loaded. Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, they have hun- they have hundreds. Yeah, hundreds it's of kind programs. Of too much a list or dog, but yeah, that'd and, be the best way. And spring's right around the yeah. corner. So and, and where can you find the Eagle Camp? <laughs> that, there's just a couple ways you can go right through YouTube directly, yeah. or you can go to our website, uh, which I'm sure our staff would prefer to get some more traffic to our website. But mm-hmm. there's a link there, um, and that's just DukeFarms.org. Duke yeah, DukeFarms.org yeah. is the uh, okay. address. So. Yeah, but yeah, Duke Farms Eagle Cam. There's the you look up for that. That's how you can find the Eagle Camera. Mm-hmm. It's funny. Some people also sometimes ask, "Where's the Eagle's Nest?" <laughs> so <laughs> we, like, we don't have to be very coy <laughs> about that. No, that's good to keep secret. Yeah. Not everything needs to be known. So it's. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one. I this was very informative for me, even as someone that's been there and is in the industry. I learned a lot today, and I, I really appreciate the two of you coming in and, and sharing this with us today. So, uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, we appreciate it. Thanks for having uh, us. Uh, thank you. Uh, uh, no problem. Uh, if you are in the New Jersey area, please visit Duke Farms. You will be so glad that you did. 
get involved if you can. Uh, there are opportunities for you to get involved, so be a part of, of their their mission. Thank you for everyone for listening to Native Plants Healthy Planet presented by Pinelands Nursery. So you can follow us on Twitter at Pinelands Nursery, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, uh, Instagram we have at Pinelands Nursery, and we also have our own podcast Instagram account now. Uh, that's at Native Plants underscore Healthy Planet. And you can also find us on YouTube at Pinelands Nursery. You can listen to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast directly at www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. Uh, mm-hmm. You can also follow the podcast on our website. Uh, oh, I'm getting confused. I'm, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I apologize. You can listen to it directly on Podbeans at pinelandsnursery.podbean.com. You can follow the podcast directly at our, our website, which is nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. You can listen to it on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, YouTube. You can even ask Alexa to play the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast. So we have a couple uh, new guests coming in the next couple weeks. Um, we've mentioned Kelly Gill a ton, um, but Kelly Gill's from the Xerxes the, Society. The pressure's on for her because now yeah, we, we keep been, promoting her really and saying she's fun. Now she's she's got to live up to it. But uh, but we also have Marcus Gray coming from uh, Audubon International. He's coming in next week. Yeah. Um, and uh, we're not necessarily releasing them right away, but but just know that we have a couple really good guests coming up for uh, for you guys to listen to. We've we've had we've reached out. We have some great organizations that are are very happy to be a part of this, and we're really excited to move forward with this. So we have some great ones coming up. Um, not to look past this one. This one is yeah, is, yeah this one was a blast. Yeah, so, thank you. So um, thank you guys for tuning in. I'm Tom. I am Fran, and thanks again. We will see everyone next time. Until then, keep it native. Mm-hmm.